And good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word to us this morning. As you might be able to tell from the white banners and uh, the, uh, the pyramid here, we are still in the season of Easter. That's an exciting time for us. That goes until Pentecost Sunday, which this year is in late May. And so as such, we are continuing our series in Luke, Easter with Luke, where we're looking at some of those places in, the, um, in Luke where Jesus talks about the resurrection. And so we're trying to figure out its truth and implication for our lives, that Jesus really is raised from the dead. In this passage today, we're going to meet the Sadducees. That's a group of Jewish people who highly doubt the resurrection and other spiritual things. And so it's kind of nice to know that it's not just we moderns who are skeptical when it comes to supernatural things, but rather that happens in every age. So God now is inviting us to not just listen, Uh, with our ears, but really listen with our hearts to His Word that He has for us in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to Him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Him a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.'" Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any question. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that You would send Your Spirit, that we would know Jesus and His resurrection better. Help me to speak these words of Yours. Help us to hear, to listen, and to integrate them into our lives, that we might be a resurrection people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure all of you have those conversations that you go back to in your heads and replay. Sometimes it's, oh, why did I say that? And you still feel bad about it. Sometimes it's, oh, I wish I would have said that thing. That was the perfect opportunity and I never did. Maybe you're like me and you have those conversations with other people in the shower. That's when you do your best work, you know? Well, there was a conversation about 12 years ago that happened. Uh, There was a family that came up to me. They had a 10-year-old, maybe an 11-year-old son, and they said, now, Matt, what club, what soccer club should we put our 10-year-old son in so that he could get a scholarship to play soccer in college? They knew that I had gone to college to play soccer, and, and I still kind of look back on this with a little bit of shame. And I kind of looked at them, and as kindly as I possibly could, I said, well, well, why don't you just figure out how much money you would pay per month or per season for whatever soccer club, you know, was nearest to you? And instead of putting them in that club, take that money and put it in a college savings account 
because your kid is probably not going to play college soccer, let alone get a scholarship. You just see the dejected look on their faces as they walked away sad. It's probably wisdom that we all could stand to hear, right? We love your kids. They're not going to be that special in most things. You know, it's okay. Sometimes we need to hear something that challenges our mindset a little bit, right? Like we all, yeah, I could, I could beat that dead horse for a while, right? Like I want my kid to go professional and then, then bankroll whatever life I want to live later, you know? I wasn't wrong to tell them this thing, you know? I wasn't wrong. I wish I could have been a little kinder, maybe a little gentler. But sometimes we need to hear the hard truth don't we? The Sadducees, when they come to Jesus in this passage, they think they're about ready to tell him the hard truth. They have this scenario that they've concocted, this scenario that they've concocted. They've probably used it to confuse many resurrection-believing Jews, and so they're ready to talk to the great rabbi, the great teacher, to stump him. But then, we might realize this, ask questions of the great rabbi and watch how he turns the table on you. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew adds to this story that Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are wrong because you neither believe the scriptures nor the power of God. As we look at this passage, I want all of us, myself included, to see God help me to believe the scriptures and the power of God, as you open up my heart and my mind to understand better the resurrection. You see, the God of the living aims to expand our view of the resurrection. That's our main idea today. It's printed in your bulletin. We're going to look at that in three ways today. First, we're going to see how Jesus, the God of the living, challenges our earthly mindsets, challenges the way that we think about the world. Two, He wants to give us a resurrection vision, a vision of this in-breaking resurrection that's coming even to the here and the now. Third, He invites us into an eternal relationship where we would be called sons and daughters of the resurrection. So first, the God of the living challenges our earthly mindset. We're just going to look a little bit at the context of this passage. Some Sadducees come up to Jesus. Now, Jesus at this point has been teaching in the temple. A few days before this, he has flipped over the Sadducees' money-changing uh, tables, and he's been teaching now in a couple of, a couple of days uh, on about difficult questions that people have for them. So, like for him, so paying taxes to Caesar where Jesus gets his authority. This question, then, is one of the last questions that he will receive in his public ministry, and he answers so well that verse 40 tells us, they no longer dared to ask him any question. It's a sad moment, too. It's only a couple of days before his betrayal, his arrest, his death, and the resurrection, and it's kind of like a bookend. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Jesus, when he was 12 years old, was teaching and asking questions in the temple, and probably some of these very Pharisees were there marveling at his answers, and now they despise him. 
Their hatred of Jesus comes probably from a number of places. The Sadducees were the elite. They were descendants of the high priest Zadok after the Babylonian exile. They were among a very special priestly class of people. They had charge of those money-changing tables that Jesus had flipped over. All of the business and sacrificial animals slipped or went through their fingers. So they were able to grab a good amount of wealth, power, through their control of the temple. They were the elites. Now, a Galilean country boy comes with a funny accent and is challenging their authority. They don't like him very much. They're also theologically opposed to Jesus. Luke tells us here that they deny the resurrection. Later on in Acts chapter 23, he tells us that they deny angels as well, even the spiritual realm. So, Josephus, who is a a Jewish historian at the time, says a couple things about the Sadducees. He says this, "'As for the persistence of the soul, penalties in death's abode and rewards, they do away with them. The soul perishes along with the body.'" In another place, Josephus says this, "'These Sadducees, quote, are indeed more heartless than any other Jew.'" their materialism, their denial of the supernatural, it's pretty standard for people who are doing very well in life. They are living, after all, their very best life now, so why worry about what's to come? As the educated elite, they would have scoffed at this uneducated peasant who believed every single thing that the Scripture said. Their disdain for Jesus comes through in the passage as well. Verses 28 through 33, they present the conundrum to Jesus. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? They could have stopped at two wives. They didn't need seven. But they really wanted to go there because they think they wanted to stick a dagger and twist it a little bit. Seven wives, she's married. The content of the question has to do with an obscure custom called the leveret marriage, where if a man dies without children, his brother is meant to marry his widow so that he could raise up offspring for the brother, and the name is perpetuated in the land so that his family name goes on. We read about this custom in Deuteronomy 25.5, and we actually see the heart of this custom, if not the form, in the story of Ruth and Boaz from the Old Testament. Now, we might be a little fuzzy on the leveret custom, but Jesus wasn't. He didn't need them to explain it to him. And when they finally ask their question to him, you can envision them resting their case with a flourish, twirling their robes. Whose wife, then, will she be in the resurrection? But there's one flaw in their argument that Jesus wants to pick at. We read it in verse 33, whose wife will she be? See, the Sadducees have an assumption about the way the world has to work in the resurrection. They believe that the institutional mechanics of this age are going to be the exact same as the institutional mechanics in the next age. In other words, they can't imagine that God would do something different in the new heavens and the new earth. So just imagine, you are talking to the living God, Jesus, the one for whom, by whom, through whom all things exist, and you say, hey, God, let me tell you how it works around here. Trust me, 
I know the way the world works. Therefore, the resurrection couldn't possibly be true. It's amazing, isn't it? But I wonder if you notice yourself doing that to God sometimes. Trust me, God, I know how it works down here. Like, I know your ways are good and righteous, and and I know, like, really holy people do them, but you don't live in the real world. You ever read the Bible and kind of think that way? Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. Think about it. Lord, I know you call me to prayer and patience, but we live in a practical world with utilitarian solutions. I need to do this now. Lord, I know you invite me to vulnerability and repentance, but if I told the truth about this, I would be buried. Lord, I know that you say you're a generous generous God, but the economy in this world works on scarcity. The first check I need to write is for me and my future. That's what I have to secure. God, I know that you call me to follow you into the unknown, but you don't know me. Before I set out, I have to have a purpose and a plan. God, I know you love my children more than I do, at least that's what they say, but I have to save him in this situation. Now look, I'm not casting dispersions on on conventional wisdom, but if all you have is conventional wisdom, then you don't have a God who is living and active and powerful and does things. If all you have is conventional wisdom, you have no room for a God who is living and active and real. If we look at this argument between the Sadducees and Jesus, just as a comment on institutional marriage, then we haven't gone deep enough. All of us need to admit a Sadducean mindset in some things, if not many things in our lives. Do you see that in yourself? Lord, I have a faithlessness here, but I really don't believe the promises that you've told me. Lord, I believe, though, help my unbelief. It's often the case when we start to admit the problem, we begin to make room for God's power to be at work. When we admit the problem, we begin to make room for God's power to be at work in us and in our lives. So Jesus challenges not just them, not just those people over there who don't believe things, challenges me and you and our faith. But then he begins to give us a vision of the resurrection. That's the second point. You see it beginning in verses 34 and 35. He talks about this age and that age, an age of the here and now and an age to come. There really is something better and different that's coming. But Jesus wants to tell us not just that it's coming, but that you can even now in this life somehow by grace attain to that age to come. That people living now in light of what Jesus is talking about actually are living in light of the future hope that's coming. This is why we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not just because we're waiting for something to happen in the future, we are, but also because we want God's resurrection power to happen now, now. 
Jesus is saying that there are people who are beginning to live now in the power of the future resurrection. The Leveret marriage, even though it seems kind of silly to us, actually is a perfect example now for Jesus to use to illustrate His points. Leveret marriage still exists actually in some places in the world today, particularly in uh, patriarchal societies that have land that needs to be kept within the bounds of that society, but it was really predominant in the ancient Near Eastern world. A brother was encouraged to take his deceased brother's wife. Now, in those days, remarriage was less common for the wife, so this could have been a boon to her, a help to her, especially because there is no life insurance or social security. It can be helpful. Raising up offspring was also important, right? At a time when inheritance was less about money in the bank and more about the land that you lived on that could give you money, you needed to keep that land in the family. This would protect your family from generational poverty. So a leveret marriage protected the widow, preserved the offspring, secured the inheritance, and enhanced the status of the family and the community. But then notice what Jesus does. Something is coming where we don't actually need to do those things anymore. The sons of the resurrection, verses 35 and 36, do not need to marry. They're neither marry nor are given in marriage in the resurrection. They don't need to worry about land preservation anymore. Why? They are worthy to live forever in the eternal promised land. God Himself will protect them. God will be the widow's husband. God will be the father of the righteous raised up. They will have a status forever as sons and daughters of God that's eternally secure in the heavenly places. We don't have to do that ourselves anymore. Oh, foolish Sadducees, he's saying, how I wish you could imagine it. The need for leveret marriage, marriage itself even, will be no more. How can you not see that the future is coming and it's good? Now, to put a cherry on top of Jesus's first argument There's a beautiful play on words that he actually uses in response to their question. The Sadducees talk about a man raising up offspring for his brother. It's actually the same root word for the word that means resurrection when Jesus talks about resurrection. So in their hypothetical situation, the brothers exist to resurrect offspring, but you've missed it, dear Pharisees. It's God who has resurrected his own sons and daughters for the world to come. Let's apply this. How would your life change if you didn't need to worry about safety or inheritance or status? If things were completely secure because God Himself was securing them for you? If you really believe that your future and your kids' future was in God's hands? Let me give a couple of examples. When we talk about child raising, It's in light of the resurrection, isn't it? We don't just raise our children to be good, upstanding members who contribute to this society and this age. We're meant to raise them up to contribute to the age to come, for the hope of the age to come. When we enter into marriage, it's not primarily about fulfilling our happiness and joy. Rather, it's about showing forth in some way a vision 
for Jesus' love for His church, for Jesus' faithfulness to His bride as a hope for the life to come. In our work, we're not just doing a nine-to-five in this age. Rather, we are really and truly, in some way, putting up scaffolding for the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. The church itself has always recognized that it's supposed to be a vision, a conduit, so it says, so it's uh, so to speak, for the life of the world to come. That's why, historically speaking, the church stepped in where other institutions failed. When the Roman world discarded their unwanted babies, the Christian church scooped them up and raised them. In a stratified society, slaves and landowners were called to equal status in the household of God. When the Jews and the Greeks couldn't stand each other, the apostles spilt lots of ink helping races to come together in love and harmony. When people without families or marriages were seen as second-class citizens, the church was a place for true friendship. When being single was not being second class, because truly and really we have friendship and connection in this new family. The church is the locus for God's resurrection power in this world. It's why we meet on Resurrection Sunday every week. And it's a question we should all be asking Lord, am I just watching church or am I? participating in this place in such a way that people are seeing a small taste, are getting a little glimpse into the resurrection and the life of the world to come. We're the signpost. We're the people who should be in some way showing what the new heavens and the new earth looks like, not because we're perfect, but because by God's grace, His power and in the resurrection is being poured out and into us and through us to a watching world. That brings us to our last point. The living God issues an eternal invitation. I love how Jesus ends His rebuttal to the Sadducees, verses 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Yeah, remember in that passage about the bush? where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. I want us to notice just a couple of things. Jesus doesn't shy away from a hard truth. I think he's taking a little dig at the Pharisees here. They're trying to lecture him about the leveret marriage, right? Remember Deuteronomy 25, and Jesus is like, remember like the one passage in the Bible that we all know, Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses in a bush? Y'all should know that one, you know, the bush passage. How did you not see that God was the God of the living there? We don't need to deal with obscure passages. Let's just look at the central passage. To be sure, Jesus could have used many beautiful passages that are a little bit more clear about the resurrection. I've printed one of them in your bulletin that I love, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. 
But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus is like, okay, that's cool. I can play on your playing field. Let's go to the call of Moses, the most obvious spot. His logic is excellent and pretty difficult to refute. God is the God of the living. If I came up to you and said, hi, my name is Matt, I knew your father. What would that imply? Your father's gone. Your father's dead. Hi, my name is Matt. I knew your father. He's dead. If I came up to you and said, hi, my name is Matt, I know your father. What does that imply? He's alive. He's still living. We have a present relationship. I know him. God does not say that he was the God of Abraham and was the God of Isaac and was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. I am. That covenantal name. God is the great I am. R. Kent Hughes captures this well. These three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God that was so dynamic, so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God even after death. So, a congregant recently shared a story with me. Some of you might have heard this. That was really beautiful. She was in the airport at the gate on her way back to San Antonio, and all of a sudden she hears her name shouted out from across the airport. She hears loud thudding footsteps running over to her, and she turns, and lo and behold, it's Tom Gibbs, who was the planting pastor of this church and the pastor here for 19 years up until a couple of years ago. And they were talking, and they were saying hello, and at that moment she was like, well, well are you going to San Antonio? He was like, no, actually, whenever I'm in the airport, I get, figure out where my gate is, and then I go and I hang out around the San Antonio gate. <laughs> like, just to see, just to see if there are people here that I know that I can hug and say hi to. There is a deep, relational even covenantal, we could say, bond between Tom Gibbs and this, the church that he loves and that he planted and all the people here. How much more can we rest in the covenant bond that God has with us, the sons and daughters that he's raised to newness of life, where we don't just say that God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but the God of Matthew and Haley and Elliot and Graham and you. Insert your name in there. I love what Jesus says to Mary on the day of his resurrection. Go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. The living one knows you. The living one calls you, and the living one invites you into resurrection life with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you. You are a covenant-keeping God. And the way you kept your covenant with us is that Jesus, your son who died, is now alive forevermore. Is that that relationship that looked to be severed will last into eternity. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who both 
have our earthly mindset taken away? Would we see in light of your resurrection? Would we live in light of that resurrection so that people could see it in a small way through us? But Lord, especially, would we enter in to that relationship because of Jesus who really is alive? Pray in His name. Amen.